Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about a subject near and dear to many of our hearts, forest health, and how forests may look moving into a future dominated by the human influences on this planet. Joining us to talk about this is Associate Professor and Extension Specialist for the University of Minnesota, Dr. Matt Russell. Dr. Russell wears a lot of different hats, but generally speaking, his research uses big data sets to understand how forests are changing. Specifically, he's interested in how disturbances change forest conditions and how indicators can be used to assess forest health and development well into the future. Now, today's topic is specifically focusing on deer, and before you get fired up, just realize that this will not be about opinions on what the best way to handle deer is. This is purely about the science of how deer are impacting forest health here in North America. You're going to learn how big data sets coupled with on-the-ground experimentation, observation, and even a lot of citizen science are contributing to our understanding of forest health in this context. But I'll let him describe all of that. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Matt Russell. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Matt Russell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about we start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Great. Well, thank you for the invitation, Matt. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'm at the University of Minnesota. I'm an associate professor and an extension specialist uh, in the Department of Forest Resources. So I like to study how trees and forests change, uh, given all the environmental influences that uh, are in our world today. And I do that through research. Uh, Most of my research focuses on forest health, how to keep our forests healthy. And I also like to use data uh, to do that. And so uh, use a lot of uh, big data sets uh, in the forestry world uh, to understand those challenges. And then in my other half of my job is with uh, the University of Minnesota Extension. And so every state has a land-grant university. And one of the biggest things that we do as a part of a land-grant university is outreach and extension to the general public about different things that are important to everyone. Uh, And so I have the fortune of doing that in the area of forestry and uh, woodland ownership and woodland management. So I work with a lot of woodland owners and natural resource professionals to kind of bring the science that we're doing at the university to the masses uh, so that every citizen has the ability to get access to university research. Excellent. So many things we can rally behind there. Forest health, big data, using science to help the public. So many good things. But what brought you to where you are today? Were you always just a kid that grew up playing in the forests and wanted to, you know, turn your passion into something you could do professionally? Or did it just kind of happen through, you know, education or career stumbles? Yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, as a kid, I hiked and I hunted in, in the Hudson Valley of New York State and just was in awe of uh, the forest there. I had the opportunity, I worked for a logger uh, when I was in high school and into college. And uh, I was always wondering, you know, logging is, you know, pretty manual labor. Uh, but I was always interested when we went with a forester, you know, why were we selecting this tree to harvest instead of that one? And and how did, how did forest uh, management and how did selecting trees to harvest uh, kind of fit into the whole entire uh, ecosystem? Um, and so I, yeah, I kind of got the got the bug for forestry there. Uh, did my forestry education at a, a small school in upstate New York, and then eventually my graduate work was I was really interested in the data behind all of this. You know, why were we, you know, can, we can use statistical models to uh, estimate how trees grow and survive, and so uh, that was really kind of what got me hooked into into forestry. 
That's awesome. And of course, I mean, forestry is a huge field. There's a lot of different topics and places you could have gone. But what got you going on like forest health? I mean, you know, when people hear logging, they kind of often just immediately go to sort of the antithesis of forest health. But there is an extreme amount of overlap there, especially in our human dominated world today. So where did that link between forest health and, and trying to understand sort of, you know, selective logging? Where did they all kind of combine for you? Yeah, I mean, I realized pretty early on in my education that if you didn't have a good understanding about how the forests are changing, you know, with with climate change and with all the disturbances that seem to be happening more frequently and, and to larger extents, then then you really wouldn't have a good grasp on what forests will look like in the future. Um, and so a lot of it for me, I mean, even when I was uh, working for that logger, you know, I was really interested in, you know, why why certain trees were growing faster than others. And many of that, you know, management fits into that pretty well. You know, we can, you know, if we manage our forests sustainably and make sure that if we harvest forests, that trees are there to replace them, uh, it can be done in a sustainable way and uh, is really an effective tool that we can use to uh, to manage our forests for the future. And so um, those kinds of things and, uh, yeah, just really seeing kind of how forests have changed, even as, you know, as young people and, you know, growing up in the Northeast, you know, some people don't live to see a you can be born and then not be able to see that tree die. You know, the trees outlive you in, in most cases. And so uh, it has been interesting as I've gotten older uh, to actually see kind of forests grow and uh, to try to monitor them through time, which is uh, which is really what's fascinating about forests. Yeah, I like going back to uh, sort of my childhood home and just you know, seeing, cause I remember individual trees. If you're in the forest enough, you just kind of get a memory for that. And, and you can see those differences. And a lot of them, you know, especially if you grew up in the eighties or nineties and today you're seeing some massive changes in the forests in terms of forest health. I mean, we've got a lot of issues when it comes to invasive pests, uh, massive tree die offs. So these are things that are happening pretty quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember, um, even so, you know where I grew up, the home I grew up in, the spruce we planted when I was in Boy Scouts. You know there, <laughs> you know there were there were small trees when we planted them, but gosh, they're thirty feet tall now. Nice. Um, after uh, you know over thirty years, so um, so yeah, it's it's interesting to see those changes. But then yeah, to see how the forests have degraded through time. A lot of the areas I hunted and, and hiked in, you know. Uh, used to be kind of pristine, and now there's a lot of Japanese barberry, an invasive mm. plant that's across much of southern New England and New York. So, yeah, just no, noticing things like that as through time, I think, really gets uh, gets you to thinking about the impacts of, of global changes on our environment. Yeah, and it's extremely complex. I mean, entire careers and lifetimes can be spent looking at different pieces of this very complex forest puzzle. But today we were connected because of an issue that I've been meaning to, 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 to cover on this podcast for some time. And it's an issue that I think a lot of people have very strong thoughts about on both sides of the spectrum. But deer, we're, we're, we're going to talk about deer and their impacts on forests today. So what brought you down that route specifically? Yeah, so going back to that time when I worked for a logger, uh, I can remember a time when we're we're on a logging job. Uh, typically, you'd work on a job for a couple of weeks at a stretch, and I remember it was a Friday, and we had cut down or we had felled a tulip poplar, uh, and we obviously we, we kind of cut the log up and we left some of the branches behind. Uh, and so, good sustainable management, you kind of leave the branches there and keep them low to the ground. And my boss at the time said, "I bet you, when we come back to work on Monday." that those deer are going to eat all of the leaves off that tulip poplar tree by the time we come back on Monday. I thought, oh, that, that can't be ridiculous. It was a, it was a large sized tree and a lot of foliage on it. Uh, and sure enough, when we came back Monday, pretty much that entire tree was barren. Wow. Uh, so all the deer have kind of basically uh, hit that tree and, and, and basically ate all the foliage off of it. And so that really gave me the impression that my God, deer eat a lot in the forest. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, 
So as much as 12 pounds a day, uh, a, a healthy deer can eat. Um, and so when you think about 12 pounds and you think about how far they deer can reach about, you know, no more higher than six or eight feet, uh, you know, that's a lot of the forest understory. That's a lot of the, uh, certainly acorns and things like that, that fall from oaks, but also herbaceous vegetation and uh, certainly tree seedlings and, and things like that. So a tremendous amount of food deer can eat, which makes deer really a significant forest health problem, especially in our Eastern U.S. forests. Yeah, and this is a complicated issue for a lot of reasons because there's no one simple smoking gun or a simple answer to any of these issues. But when you think about deer, I mean, they're a native herbivore on the landscape. They're something that's been here, evolved here, and and should have this ecological interaction. So why has it become an issue that uh, has to deal with forest health? You know, why do we look at this native herbivore and go, ooh, maybe there's something not so good going on here? You know, the big thing is, you know, that the deer hunting community does a lot of great things for the management of deer and our forests, really. You know, most states, uh, you know, the, the states are in control of the wildlife in their state, uh, at least in the U.S. And, um, you know, deer hunters pay, you know, on it 40, 50 bucks a year for that deer license. And those license fees go into managing for deer populations and kind of indirectly managing for forests, too. Um, and so there's certainly a, a strong interest to keep a lot of deer on the landscape. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, at least in Minnesota where I am, you know, deer used to be kind of restricted to really the southern portion of the state and kind of what was traditional prairie and kind of our southeastern kind of eastern broadleaf forest. Uh, but really after European settlement, they really expanded into all all areas of the state, including into the boundary waters and wow. uh, areas where you don't necessarily think would be great deer habitat, you know, deer really like kind of having forests, but also kind of uh, open lands, prairie, or, or even farmland uh, to kind of hang out on those edges, right? So a lot of deer habitat has kind of been expanded in much of the eastern U.S. forest. And that's, you know, a lot of the interest in having deer has come from the hunting community, which um, I think regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, I think everybody wants healthy forests and everyone wants healthy deer populations. Depending on the numbers, the numbers can be adjusted up or down, but uh, but but that's where kind of wildlife biologists and foresters come into play. Right, and it's really important to understand there is a ton of overlap in these communities, like you said. No, regardless of where you fall on the subject, there is way more that make that we have in common in terms of our desire for healthy forests than we have wherever you fall. But this idea that deer are expanding is kind of interesting. And one of the most stark examples I heard of this was I grew up in the other side of uh, New York from you, but I was very used to seeing herds of deer that were 20, 30, even 40 strong, some areas even more. And to me, that was normal background. That's just how deer, they're gregarious, they're a herd forming animal. And imagine my surprise when you talk to it, the first time I talked to a deer biologist and they told me uh, that is not historically what the species would have, white tailed deer at least, those are not the normal sizes of their herds, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, really anything, what we think of in, in terms of forestry and, and managing for trees, uh, anything above 10 deer per square mile, you start to get problems with trying to get trees to grow because mm. uh, deer will obviously need to eat that 12 pounds of food a day. Uh, and so they need to, you know, kind of use anything that they can to do that. So yeah, you're exactly correct. I mean, most deer, you know, a typical deer has a home range of about 500 acres. And so, yeah, it's not common for them to kind of be herded up like that. Like, you know, they're not like elk or some of those other bigger uh, Western species. And so, yeah, that's been the issue is that, uh, yeah, just seeing these overwhelming deer density numbers. And, you know, we often think of it as we're certainly interested in plants and vegetation, <laughs> but there are also other other issues like deer vehicle collisions. Mm. Um one of the numbers I like to look at is uh, 
a number that State Farm puts out every year. And it's basically how many deer vehicle collisions they estimate happen every year in a, in a given state. And in Minnesota, it's about 40,000. So, you know, whether or not you know it, uh, when you go to sign up for your car insurance, your premium is adjusted by, you know, deer density is, is you know, one of the many metrics that's uh, that's in there. So, um, wow. so yeah, it's really interesting to, to think about other issues, not just with plants, but um, but also how that relates to humans as well. Yeah, it is really become sort of a, a, a human issue on like a big spectrum other than the ecological impacts of it all. I mean, growing up in a rural area, I don't know a single person that doesn't have a deer collision story or a car that was completely totaled because of a deer collision story. Absolutely. Yeah. Same way. You know, I have friends in high school, you know, maybe that's partly driven because uh, there was a lot of years experience in driving, but <laughs> yeah, I had friends in high school that always had, you know, deers, you know, hitting their cars or some bad accident with a deer. And yeah, that's just one example. The other one is uh, in New York and uh, Connecticut, you know, Lyme disease has been a, mm. just a huge driver. And so there's certainly a relationship between, uh, you know, deer are a vector for Lyme disease along with the, the white-footed mouse. But uh, that can be, you know, certainly another human health concern about uh, the issues of, you know, transmitting Lyme disease through heavy, high deer population. And there have been studies, especially from those early studies in Connecticut that have shown high, areas with higher deer densities tend to have uh, higher incidences of, of Lyme disease for, for people in that county. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting to look at some of the human data behind deer populations and not just the, the impacts to forests. Yeah, a really heavy reminder that we are not separate from the ecological systems that we live in. We are part of them. We're just kind of buffered in our nice cozy homes. Uh, but when they, when you talk about deer numbers, you can say it a lot of different ways, but there's no denying that they're at a much higher abundance today than they ever have been in the past. So how does this continent go from, like you said, about 10 deer sized herds to what we see today? Well, I mean, there's many factors, of course, but overview, why do we have so many deer on this continent today? Yeah, I mean, the habitat has certainly changed, you know, when you look at what it was like before European settlement to today, and deer are really attracted to uh, to a mixed landscape. And so as you kind of uh, increase the area, you kind of produce more open areas, uh, even as you produce more farmland. And so as you kind of continue to, uh, to expand out, uh, land use changes go from forest to a kind of mixed uses and uh, areas with open areas, that's really prime deer habitat. And so as you've done that much across the, the Eastern US with uh, building roads and accessing new areas, uh, that's really improved the deer habitat. And uh, I know, especially here in Minnesota and other states as well. What about predators? I mean, there would historically probably would have been much higher predator densities throughout a lot of Eastern North America. And I'm I'm sure that, you know, humans moving in and getting rid of those definitely has, has had an impact as well. Exactly. Yeah. There's been a lot of studies. I mean, the Yellowstone uh, National Park kind of with wolves and, and deer, that's been a kind of a historic study. But yeah, and there have been studies that as the deer come into an area, the wolves will follow them. <laughs> and and so that's certainly, you know, wolf, deer is certainly a is prey to wolves. Uh, and so there's a lot of, lot of studies kind of looking at yeah, impacts of predators. And, you know, that's gotten to the point now where you know, a lot of states are thinking about trying to reintroduce wolves um, hmm. as a part of their, their wildlife management. I know Colorado has recently uh, been going through that and um, you're exactly right. And that we can't separate out the human element of that. And certainly when humans are there, livestock are there yep. and ranchers and farmers don't necessarily want wolves uh, being predators to their livestock and, uh, you know, our, our dogs and domestic animals, uh, we don't want them to be prey to wolves too. So yeah, it, it's tough conversations to have with a lot of different groups that have a voice 
uh, in this argument. Yeah. And I mean, that's the keystone of democracy is letting everyone have their voice. And you have to respect that. And you have to respect that people are going to fall on all parts of the spectrum of this. And, you know, the wolf debate is an entire podcast, (laughs) probably subject in and of itself. But coming back to deer and forest health, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to try to understand or want to understand what our deer are doing to the forest. As you mentioned, a single deer can eat a lot of plant material. And when you scale that up to the numbers of deer on the landscape, this is a significant impact on forests. So let's dive into that a little bit. I mean, broad brushstrokes, if you see a forest that doesn't have deer or at least has more uh, better managed deer populations versus a, a forest that doesn't, what can you kind of expect to see differences wise in those forests? Well, for anyone that hasn't seen uh, the results from an exclosure study, um, I really encourage you to, to try to take a look at uh, one of those. And so these exclosure studies, sometimes they're as small as like a quarter of an acre and they're just fenced areas um, where they just let trees grow free from deer browse for decades sometimes. And so I encourage you to take a look at those because that's really what the forest would look like if there were no deer present. Um, and so we have a great example of one I visited a few times here in Northern Minnesota and it's just, you know, the diversity of plants is so much more. The plants are, are more uneven aged and that, you know, you have uh, certainly older trees, you have saplings, you have seedlings, uh, but they're just represent a different kind of uh, species than you might find outside of the fence. Um, and so really encourage you to take a look at some of those exclosure studies. And there have been hundreds of studies like that uh, published in the literature over the years. But that's not necessarily to say that forests can't be healthy without deer. Um, I think, you know, at lower deer densities, trees can grow just fine and you can have kind of good sustainably managed forests uh, and maybe along with some management, you know, protecting young seedlings, maybe doing things like exclosures in key areas. Uh, Those uh, needs for for healthy trees and seedlings to grow into saplings, to grow into overstory trees uh, can be done. Uh, And so, yeah, it depends on kind of having good wildlife biologists working together with good forest management people uh, to kind of make that happen. Right on. Yeah. And this is a really good point that the human element is still with us the whole way through here. But, you know, growing up again where I did in Western New York, I don't think I really saw many forests or didn't have many opportunities to see forests that didn't have really, really high deer densities. And luckily, those deer exclusion experiments were very popular Eagle Scout projects uh, in my region for a few decades. So there was plenty of like physical examples you could walk up to. And it is pretty remarkable. And when you start to see those differences in the plant communities, I'm an understory guy personally, so those are the ones I notice more, you know, those are different communities and you start to realize like, okay, why are Trillium really doing well in these exclosures? But then you see them throughout the forest and there's almost nothing there. It's same thing with orchids, all these other understory herbs. There's really only one factor there and it's that herbivory factor. <laughs> Yeah, and it goes so. Yeah, and, and the other thing to think about too is that deer are ruminants, uh, and so they can eat uh, and then digest it like days later. Um, oh. And so that that their stomach is actually like a like a cow's, and that it has like these four major chambers of the stomach. And so, just the biology of the deer makes them. That's why they can eat things ranging from grasses to corn to acorns and just about everything that you might find on the on the forest understory. A deer can eat, um, and so yeah, to think about the biology of the deer it is well adapted in terms of how it might survive on all the things that might be found in our forests and uh, in our prairies and kind of the adjoining lands there. 
Yeah, that's why I'm always extremely suspect of any claim from a garden or nursery center that says, this is a deer-resistant plant. I'm like, okay, well, if your deer aren't hungry, maybe they'll leave it alone. But I don't really put much past a hungry deer when it comes to uh, looking for food, especially in a garden setting. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the you know, some of the, the companies that, that sell those products. And there are some, uh, and we, when we work with woodland owners that work really well and some that work for about a week and then you have to reapply it or, or something <laughs> like that. But the cost of, of managing for deer is, is astounding. Uh, one of the numbers that our nature conservancy, uh, they own and manage quite a bit of forest land in Minnesota. They estimate in their forest restoration budget, every $2 out of $3 that they spend, they spend just on restoring and deer protection. Wow. Uh, and so that's, you know, a dollar goes to the tree planting efforts and to pay the tree planters, uh, but $2 goes to actually managing those trees for deer browse. And so that includes, you know, it can include things like exclosures. Uh, in Minnesota, we do a thing called bud capping, which is basically taking an index card and, and putting it on top of the terminal bud of some of our browse sensitive species like eastern white pine and white cedar, uh, because that's just enough. Usually it's that terminal bud that is packed with nutrients that the deer really like. Mm. So just by putting that index card, pressing a staple on it, that deters the deer, especially through wintertime when deer huh. are, are really looking for food. Um, but that can cost $50 an acre to apply. Uh, and so that's that's not cheap when you're thinking about properties with hundreds or thousands of acres that that adds up pretty quickly and so so yeah a lot of money goes into managing forests to prevent deer browse yeah and when you think of this scaling up to the level of a forest because this is obviously more of a conversation about forest health than anything you mentioned that deer roughly seven eight feet tall is about the height they can reach but when you think about how seedlings go from the seed stage to a seedling to a sapling and the time that can take in a shaded understory i mean that's a long time for a juvenile tree even up to like you know essentially a teenage tree to have to deal with this sort of pressure and when you think of how a forest is made and regenerated and kept going over time it's that recruitment process those seedlings germinating new trees growing and if the deer are constantly eliminating those what happens to the forests of the future absolutely it's a great point yeah we i led a study a couple of years ago that looked at uh, the idea of ingrowth and so ingrowth are really those ghost trees so typically when we when we go out and measure a forest, we count all the trees in the forest. Uh, and then when we go back five or 10 years later, uh, some of the trees die. And then we have ghost trees that come in that were too small to measure last time uh, when we measured, but now they're big enough to, to be a part of our sample. And so we did a study kind of looking at the forest inventory and analysis data. Uh, so that's kind of the, the nation's forest health card, forest health uh, report card. And uh, it kind of assesses the trends and statuses of our of our forests across the United States. And we use some of those data to look at different areas with different deer densities and then how ingrowth changed or how trees kind of basically became seedlings to saplings and then saplings to overstory trees. Uh, and we found that about half of the saplings never really got to be overstory trees in high deer browse areas. Um, and so that's even when they're kind of larger, uh, just because there's so much more competition from deer browse. And so deer browse is a great predictor of the future forest. And so any of you that are walking in the forest, uh, certainly a lot of people imagine being kind of in a nice shaded area on a hot summer day, but take a look around in the understory uh, and see, you know, what are the trees that are going to be there in the next 50 years or a hundred years. And oftentimes in many of our forests, we don't know what that is because there aren't those seedlings or we don't have that diversity of uh, tree sizes and tree ages and species that are going to replace those older trees when they eventually decay and, and die. 
Yeah, that's a really important observation to put into people's minds because once you start to notice it, it becomes alarming to say the least. You know, there's there's nothing here. Oh no, what do we do? Um, but that's not to say that deer don't have preferences. And you know, growing up again, trying to do you know things in my parents' yard, trying to help with restoration projects. There's definitely species that deer will hit harder. You mentioned uh, cedars, thuya. There's an area, a swamp, a white cedar swamp, where I can walk through. And it is a perfect, it almost looks like it was a park. Someone went underneath and manicured up to about just over my head. So six, seven feet. And there's a very obvious <laughs> reason that's there. So, uh, you know, are there species that are far more susceptible to this and that we might even from a conservation perspective have to worry about a little bit more in the context of deer populations? Yeah, there, there are definitely an different ranges of palatability for different species that deer have. Uh, and that's not consistent across all areas. Mm. Uh, it can vary depending on from region to region. Like even in Minnesota, eastern white pine, uh, you know, planting it in the northern part of the state, you're going to have challenges with deer. But planting it in the southern part of the state, you'll probably be okay just because there's a lot more variety and, and a lot more diversity and other things in the southern part of the state that might be there. But um, yeah, in Minnesota, our conifers are a big issue. Uh, and so eastern white pine, northern white cedar, and jack pine, especially for some of the hardwood species or the deciduous species, a lot of the maples are very of concern, sugar maple, red maple, um, species like that, yellow birch uh, to a lesser extent. And so, yeah, we need to think about, especially if we're if we have uh, management scenarios that really favor a few of these species, uh, then we need to put in the effort and the time and cost to, to manage for these trees to go from seedlings to mature trees. Right on. Yeah, I know a few biologists, uh, at least botanists, that do a lot of heavy conservation work in the Northeast. And they said they've had to become cliff biologists almost, and not because they like repelling. Most of them are actually kind of afraid of the ones I talk to. It's just because those are the areas where those plants are able to hang on because the deer can't get down the cliff. And so even beyond the trees themselves, this is really impacting the plant communities. And they also mentioned that, uh, you know, these forests you'll see understory, but it's usually like sedges or ferns, though things that they're not necessarily going to first, uh, or at least can recover a little bit easier from uh, browse. Exactly. Yeah. And for us too, you know, I'm certainly as a forester really interested in the trees, but uh, it's also for our wildflowers. Um, uh, wildflowers like uh, the showy lady slipper and trillium. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest in certainly keeping those uh, wildflowers abundant across the landscape. And with heavy deer populations, it's it's certainly tough. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the browse line. I mean, that's a, you know, as a, anyone that spent a any time on a lake with, with cedar around the lake, that's, <laughs> you can often find, yeah, that six or seven feet. It looks like someone pruned all the trees <laughs> Perfectly. <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you're out in the middle of that lake. And so, yeah, that's a great way to look for it. Another thing too, I mean, we've done research too that has shown that uh, in areas with heavier deer brows, uh, higher deer densities, there's actually been more invasive plants. Wow. And so that's kind of the downside and kind of the ecology behind many of this. Um, and so again, using that forest inventory and analysis data, uh, we've looked at kind of the, the indicators of, of plant health and they kind of indicate, okay, are this is this a native species or is this an introduced species? Uh, and sure enough, when we look at, we overlay kind of a map of deer density uh, with those introduced species, we find higher areas with deer density have more introduced species. And so that's kind of the, the other downside is that there are some aggressive plants that can take the place of some of our native species uh, in some of these areas with lots of deer. Wow, that's an interesting dynamic because you think of invasion meltdowns as usually involving multiple invasive species, but here's a native herbivore contributing to uh, invasion. So 
you know, are you at the point with those data that you can say there's some mechanisms there? Like, how does that shake out? Or is it just, you know, today at this point, uh, an interesting correlation worth further investigation? It's, uh, yeah, right now, it's kind of an interesting uh, data point. I mean, as, as many people know, working with plants, especially with forests in the eastern United States and the northern states, it takes 20 years, 30 years, 40 years to get, you know, a full cycle of kind of an understanding of what's going on. And so, hmm. uh, yeah, we're always kind of seeking funding to kind of keep projects like this along uh, and going. But um, but yeah, uh, anyone that wants to get into the, the area of studying forests needs to be patient and uh, <laughs> kind of uh, have the mindset that, you know, just seeing something one year is good, but kind of tracking it through time is, is really what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, you hear that all the time in seminars, like, oh, we need more data, we need longer term studies. But unfortunately, at this point, you know, most of the funding cycles are like three, four years, you're not going to get that unless you have repeated efforts to secure funding. And, you know, as a researcher, you got to write grants, you have to obtain funding, but I'm sure that's not why you got into this field. You don't want to be spending most of your time convincing people to give you money. But, you know, here's the call for the importance of that, because, yeah, forest dynamics are slow and they do not operate on timescales that we readily you know, conceive and can wrap our heads around. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where the idea of, you know, to be a successful researcher, you really need those partnerships with other organizations. Um, we partner a lot with the Forest Service. You know, the Forest Service has a lot of long-term data from experimental forests. Mm. Um, and so while we might write a grant that's two or three years, you know, maybe we'll be able to overlay it on, on top of the experimental forest. And we could use some of those data that have been collected at that forest, you know, for, for the last uh, 30 or 40 years uh, to be able to say something about some of the dynamics that we're seeing. So, uh, yeah, you're exactly right in that uh, being creative in terms of uh, applying for those grants and getting money to, to study what you want, but do it in a creative way that kind of uh, adds value by leveraging your partnerships and other organizations you're working with. Right on. Collaboration and big data, two great things of the uh, information age. <laughs> Right on. And so shifting gears here towards sort of the management side of things, you know, you've already kind of hinted at how expensive some of this can be, especially when you start scaling up to multiple acres of land. And we're entering into an era where ecological restoration, habitat restoration is going to be vital to, you know, getting some of these pieces back together, getting health back on the landscape. And it's a difficult task because there's a lot of different ways to do it. They're probably oftentimes very regionally specific, but you know, whereas a gardener can fence off things pretty easily, pretty quickly, when you start scaling up to even just an acre of forests, this can be a challenge. So what are some options, at least for landowners that have property that are dealing with deer issues? You know, what, where do you start with this idea of managing a forest when there are this background level of deer that are just so high? Yeah, it, it is a tough, a tough situation. Um, but yeah, we, we generally tell landowners that, uh, you know, first get an understanding of, you know, are deer in your area or not? Mm. Um, in Minnesota, we have a lot of uh, what we call absentee landowners, you know, they own a cabin up north, and they're up there a couple of weeks during the summer, but they're not always there. But the time they spend there, they really, they really value. So we definitely encourage you to just notice what's what's going on notice things like, do you see browse line in the woods? Like, like you had mentioned, Matt, um, other things like, do you see bark rubs that, that, you know, male bucks, uh, will leave behind on smaller saplings. Notice, uh, the browse on even the individual, uh, trees. And so deer are really messy eaters. And so it's almost easy to spot where they browse because it looks like they almost shred off the, the top of the bud and the terminal leader or, or some of the, 
uh, some of the leaders off to the side. So notice things like that when you're out in the woods. And then in terms of management, um, I always tell landowners to be creative. There are a lot of companies, if you go to your, your local hardware store, that might be selling some of these repellents and uh, some of those kinds of things. And those things you might try maybe near your home if you have special landscape plants or something. Um, I encourage you to, to try things like bud capping if that's used in your area. Uh, especially during the winter. Uh, so people tend to do this during fall as a way to kind of protect some of the seedlings you planted and get them through the winter so that deer won't browse them. Uh, think about uh, even putting up a small exclosure. You know, it doesn't have to be necessarily acres in size, but a small exclosure can really kind of provide you kind of some information about what the forest might look like. Um, and so particularly if you're interested in kind of looking at those long-term changes, exclosures would work really well for that. So I encourage you to do that. Right on. And what I like too, is it just gets people out and encourages them to observe, make observations, try different things, experiment, you know, get to know the landscape and you get a better sense of sort of what's going on in your surrounding area. You know, you mentioned some of these sprays you could use. There's a forest preserve near us that has a really thriving population of Michigan lily. It's one of the only spots in near town that has them. And it's because they go out and spray them with, I think it's something based in coyote pee, but it stinks. Uh, it's, it makes getting to see those plants an interesting sense experience but they're there and they produce seed every year now so this is something that can kind of keep going and even in my own experience just going to like the soil water conservation district getting some tree tubes when they do their tree sales that improved the ability for me to plant saplings on my parents landscape and now they're you know 13 14 foot oaks and they're going to finally be part of the ecosystem rather than these little stumps that keep getting nibbled back year after year after year and not doing much Exactly. Yeah, I definitely encourage you too to yeah take a look and you know go to your your state agency's website, uh, you know Department of Natural Resources, Department of Conservation, whatever it is. See what kind of resources they might have. A lot of states have cost share programs for mm -hmm. landowners. Um, Wisconsin has a great one where they actually kind of pay you for for managing for for deer on your land, uh, and I, that is included in that is kind of an, some forest management type work. So lots of states have different programs like that. Yeah, our local soil water and conservation district uh, uh, in the spring they have tree sales where you can purchase seedlings uh, and plant those. Um, we work with a cooperative on the north shore of Minnesota. They actually give out uh, fencing uh, around some of these uh, some of these seedlings that you might purchase. So, yeah, check with your you know ask neighbors you know kind of where they're getting ideas from. A lot of states and a lot of programs have just great opportunities to to manage healthy forests through tree tubes or, or fencing and, and things like that. Yeah, and I mean we we have to come back to the fact that hunters have to play a role in this. I mean, in the absence of you know other mammalian predators on the landscape, humans have replaced a lot of that. And I grew up in a hunting community. A lot of my friends are hunters. You know, this is something I understand. I know that some of them are the most impassioned conservationists, naturalists, talented botanists, ecologists that I know. And they are concerned. And one of their concerns is that hunting is not nearly as popular as it once was, or at least in a lot of areas, it's waning in popularity. You know, my my friend Jared brings this point up every time he gives a lecture on it. And it is alarming to look at, uh, you know, sort of the fallout of this sort of cultural practice, this understanding of getting food off the landscape. So, you know, what role do hunters play in all of this? Yeah, I think they play a, a really key role uh, in a lot of ways. Certainly, hunting can be used as a management tool for deer populations. I mean, they contribute so much to the economy in a lot of you know states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, some of these states with really strong hunting heritages. Um, but yeah, I've heard I hear from fellow hunters as well that um, you know they're they're increasingly concerned about what the forests look like um, based on the deer that they're seeing 
uh, out there. And so one of the things that I really like is uh, some of the state agencies are really incorporating uh, healthy habitat as an indicator of, of good deer population and deer management. Mm. And so I can't say enough about the good work that the folks in our, our Minnesota DNR do uh, to really recognize that managing for healthy forest is the same thing as managing for healthy wildlife. And so we always like to say good wildlife management is good forest management. Um, and so, yeah, we can't think about those separately and, and deer hunters play an important role with that, but we're really concerned, you know, yeah, if you look at the hunting participation numbers, it's, it's dwindled uh, in the last several decades and relying on hunting alone uh, can't necessarily be a, a thing that we, we think about when it comes to managing for deer populations. Yeah. And again, it's one of those issues that I think a lot of people want to fall on sort of what they think is a black and white sort of take on it. But again, going back to this idea of the overlap in interest, if we look for the common ground, you know, I don't know a single hunter that's like, I hate these forests. They're gross. I want them to decline. And I also don't know a lot of people that don't like hunting that are, you know, for the sake, love nature. So again, finding those those common grounds, realizing we have more in common and it's not these black and white issues. Everyone's got to come together and we all have a stake in this, whether our interests are hunting or just going out and looking at wildflowers and being, you know, forest bathing, whatever you want to call it. There, there's so much overlap there and we need each other. We need to talk more. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I would encourage any of your, any of your listeners to, you know, go to your state agency's website, uh, whoever manages the deer in your state and, uh, just th- think about what they have in terms of, you know, what are they outlet? Where do forests and, and the health of the forest kind of fit into their, their managing deer populations? And um, it's really important and really revealing in a lot of ways, but I totally agree. You know, it's not like uh, we're not sitting at this all in different chairs. You know, we're all kind of at the same table talking about these issues. Right. And speaking of sort of the, the community involvement in this, you also have a really interesting citizen science program that people can actually get involved, whether they're hunters, gardeners, anyone across the board, whatever your interest is, you have a stake in this and can contribute to our understanding of what's going on out there. Yeah, we run the Assessing Vegetation Impacts from Deer uh, Citizen Science Program. And so we got the idea really from the from New York State uh, hmm. and Cornell University developed this program uh, that looked at kind of monitoring trees uh, and New York actually does wildflowers as well. Um, and we're not doing that wildflower implementation in Minnesota, but we're, we're focused on the trees. And so it involves having community and, and volunteer people, uh, volunteers go out and man- measure seedlings and their growth through time. And so we ask for a three-year commitment to measure seedlings. Uh, and so we ask for volunteers to select one of the most palatable tree species in Minnesota. Uh, and so those are, I think we've got a list of about 15 tree species mm-hmm. that that falls under. And they go out, they kind of set up temporary plots. Uh, and so they, they stake those plots and then they monitor uh, we think about 20 to 50 tree seedlings, how they grow through time, whether or not they've been browsed or not. Uh, and they just kind of give us those data. Uh, and so one of the interesting things is that even in this era of big data, you think, oh, we've got all the data we need on uh, on everything, right, through programs like the Forest Inventory Analysis Program. But surprisingly, we have little data on how seedlings grow across a big geographic area through time. Uh, and so we're really looking for trees, seedlings that are palatable by deer uh, and to, for folks to follow those for three years through time. And so uh, the Assessing Vegetation Impacts from Deer program gives us some data that uh, allows us to look at the future forest. Because a lot of the way that we're forecasting our forest now, it, we're kind of living in this fantasy land uh, <laughs> and that we're thinking that these forests are going to uh, you know, grow up to, to some magical forest. But without taking into account deer density and browse impacts on some of our tree seedlings, uh, we need to get we need to do that to get a better depiction of what the future forest will look like. 
Wow, that's a really interesting perspective to take on it because it's giving you a lot of different takes on this. But this idea of the future forest and what it's going to look like, going back to what I said, you kind of grow up with what you're used to seeing and thinking this is how it's always been and how it's always going to be. But if there's one thing you learn in ecology is that these these ecosystems are dynamic and, you know, they might remain a forest in some stretch, but the players can always change. And by understanding these dynamics, by understanding these, these sort of recruitment survival process, you really do have a much more accurate forecast other than saying just, ah, well, it's 80% maple. It's probably going to stay 80% maple, or this might become a little bit more abundant. Like you said, you, you, it is kind of a fantasy if you don't have data on what's growing up and will be there in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and certainly when we think about uh, things like climate change, you know, we do know that, you know, species have the potential to move. And, um, you know, with the idea that, you know, some species might be better suited to more northern environments uh, than they might be today in the future. Uh, that's certainly a thing to think about, too. And in a lot of experiments in, in Minnesota, we're trying to plant some pretty novel tree species. Uh, we're planting ponderosa pine in Minnesota, which is we think about as a western U.S. species. Uh, we're planting swamp white oak in northern Minnesota, which we think of as more of a southern kind of Illinois type species. So wow. certainly we're thinking about, you know, how different trees might survive in, in different environments in the future. And uh, certainly deer browse is, has to be a part of that equation. Um, it's funny going to, you know, going to conferences and listening to other speakers, the aspect of deer has almost become like the aspect of climate change. You know, <laughs> a lot of people will talk about some of the changes that they're seeing and they'll talk about climate related to that. But increasingly, I've seen people talking about deer, like as a part of, well, we saw these results in our experiment, but we didn't, didn't take into account the effect of deer browse that kind of, uh, you know, limited the growth of our, of our seedlings. So we should have probably protected them or, or something like that. So yeah, there are, uh, a lot of issues, deer uh, and climate change is, is a good topic too to discuss more. Yeah, big time. And even just microclimates scaling way down, you know, a, a work by Dr. Bialik Murphy, she's been able to show that deer populations, when they rise, they change the effective sex ratios of plants because they're changing the microclimate, which puts stress on plants, which changes their expression of male versus female flower. I mean, just the, the, the complexity of impacts, this is something that desperately needs more attention and, and more boots on the ground to generate those data to make those data sets that you have been alluding to throughout this entire conversation conversation. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and going back to the, the issue of the presence of non-native species in areas where deer have been uh, is really important to, to think about too. So even like we have uh, garlic mustard is, is an invasive herbaceous plant across much of the northern United States. Uh, and deer won't necessarily eat garlic mustard, <laughs> but they'll be able to spread garlic mustard uh, just by trampling. You know, deer are deer are mammals and they, and they walk a lot. Uh, and so by trampling, they'll kind of spread the seed of garlic mustard into different areas and there have been some studies that have looked at that and yeah i mean this idea of uh thinking about deer as, as a key driver keystone species really mm. of the of the forest environment in, in many of our areas right on and so you're someone that interfaces with the public just as much as you do scientists which is a really cool position to be in i think people like you are are desperately needed how do you talk about this to the general public? I mean, there's so many ways we can attack this issue, but you always have to remember that it is a democracy. Everyone's going to fall on a different point on that spectrum, but you have to find ways to kind of broach this topic because it's something that, you know, there's a lot of conversation enders. So what are some like pragmatic approaches to sort of addressing the deer population issue that we have in North America? <laughs> if you even have a simple answer to that question, I apologize. 
Yeah, the most important thing and the most effective strategy, I think, is to show evidence. And so if you're with a group of people, you know, go out to an area in the forest and look at what deer browse looks like um, and look at where the deer trail is going through the woods. Um, that's pretty easy to see in, in a lot of areas where there's heavy deer populations. Uh, use data to your advantage. Um, and so there's a lot of great studies and things like those exclosure studies, again, are just so revealing in terms of uh, what they show. It's like everything, the only thing that's not held constant in an exclosure is the deer. And so you can really get a sense of what that looks like uh, and what the vegetation looks like, you know, after a few years of, of having that. So, yeah, I think to, to the best that, you're, that you can show data, uh, show evidence, uh, have good examples of, of things like deer browse and, and what it means and uh, learning more about the history of your area too. You know, if you live in a, a forested region, was this always forested? What did mm -hmm. this look like 30 years ago? What about you know, 300 years ago. And so, yeah, having a good knowledge of the history and then having data on your side is always a good way to kind of show the effects of, of anything in, in the ecological world. Yeah. And again, I can't emphasize enough how much everything we've talked about today kind of goes back to just observing, getting to understand the area you live, having a, a stake in the future of it all. I mean, it just makes us better stewards in the long run. And that's, you know, again, the human element is here. It's been here for a very long time. We are part of this. And to think that, you know, removing us as the solution is just, I mean, un unfeasible. Absolutely. Yeah. Thinking about where humans fit in is, you know, we have to think about that with everything that we do, uh, because especially with a, with a organism like deer, there are lots of people interested in it and it has obviously cascading effects on our ecosystem. So uh, it's an important topic that we think more about for sure. Right on. Well, if with that in mind, uh, if people want to find out more about your work, uh, maybe get involved in your citizen science program, you know, where do people find out more about what you do, what your colleagues do, and just find out more information on this issue in general? Yeah, I think uh, for information about the Citizen Science Program, uh, the website is avid.umn.edu. And so there you'll find information about what the program is and kind of uh, what volunteers do as a part of that program. If interested in, in stuff that I've worked on, some of my research papers, uh, health.forestry.umn.edu uh, is the way to get access to those papers. Um, those are the best ways to kind of keep about kind of what I've been up to. But again, I really encourage your folks, to, your listeners to to Go to your state agency's website, look at what they have about deer in your state and, and kind of what they're saying. And um, I know in Minnesota, we've got like a public comment period now. Yeah. They're thinking about revising some of the uh, some of the issues around deer population management. So uh, be involved. You're, like you said, be a good advocate for democracy and, and, and state your voice. And that's really important in, the, in this area uh, so much. So. Right on. And of course, I will put up links to save everyone the trouble of having to stop their car or whatever and write those down. But uh, Dr. Russell, this has been fascinating. This has been really important to talk about. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us, but also for the work that you're doing and trying to understand these dynamics. I mean, this is forest health in a big way. So uh, thanks for sticking up for the forests. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Cheers. All right. That was a great conversation. I thank Dr. Russell for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I hope you learned a lot from our discussion. If you want to learn more about this work as well as all of the work being featured on this podcast, make sure to always check out the show notes for each episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Before I let you go, I just want to say thank you again to everyone that supports this podcast over at patreon.com slash plants. If you're enjoying listening to this each and every week for free, you have to thank my patrons. In fact, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast, Shelly. Shelly went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. 
which means Shelly is getting access to all of the wonderful kickbacks we have over at Patreon, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. Those are really fun mini conversations that keep the ball rolling on botanical and ecological appreciation. So once again, if you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting it because I literally could not be doing this podcast without the support of my patrons each and every month. There are also plenty of stickers still available over at indefensiveplants.com shop and lots of wonderful customizable merch with great vintage botanical designs over at teespring.com slash stores slash indefensiveplants. You can also pick up my new book, In Defense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. Once again, all of the relevant links are in the show notes for this episode. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find them. But that is it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you're hitting that subscribe button. But otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, be good to each other, and get outside if you can. Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.